Chapter 43 The Passing of the Tathagata My lack of strength did not allow us to undertake long daily journeys, and made it necessary sometimes to take a day for rest. So it took us a whole month to reach Vesali. We knew that the master had made a lengthy stay there, but he had been gone now for about six weeks. We had learned a short time before, in a village in which lived many faithful followers of the Blessed One, that the venerable Sariputra and Moggallana had passed away. The thought moved me deeply that these two great disciples, the generals of the Dharma as we named them, no longer dwelt on earth. Of course we all knew well that these great ones, as even the Buddha himself, were merely human beings just as we, but the idea that they could leave us had never been allowed to arise in our minds. Sariputra, who had so often in his deliberate way solved difficult questions for me, had passed away. He was a disciple most like the Master in wisdom, and he stood as did the Master in his eightieth year. Was it possible that even the Buddha himself could be approaching the end of his life on earth? Perhaps the uneasiness which was caused by this fear fanned some smouldering remnant of my past fever again into a blaze, and be that as it may, I arrived in Vesali sick and exhausted. In the town there lived a rich woman, a follower of the Buddha, who made it her special care to minister in every possible way to the needs of the monks and nuns passing through. When she learned that a sick nun had arrived, she at once sought me out, brought Medini and myself to her house, and tended me there with great care. Moved by her kindness, I soon gave expression to the fear that was troubling me, and asked whether she thought it possible that the master, who was of the same age as Sariputra, would also soon leave us. At that she burst into a flood of tears, and in a voice broken by sobs exclaimed, then you don't know yet? Here, in Vesali, about two months ago, the master himself foretold that he would enter final nirvana in three months' time. And just to think, if only Ananda had possessed understanding enough and had spoken at the right moment, it would never have taken place, and the Buddha would have lived on to the end of the eon. I asked what the good Ananda had had to do with it, and in what way he had deserved such blame. In this way, answered the woman. One day the master went with Ananda outside of the town, to meditate in the neighbourhood of the Chapala temple. In the course of their conversation, the master told Ananda that whosoever had developed the spiritual powers within himself to perfection could, if he so desired, remain alive through a whole eon. Oh, that simpleton Ananda, that he didn't at once, even with this plain hint, say, Please, Lord, remain alive through this eon for the blessing, the welfare and the happiness of the many folk. His heart must have been possessed by Mara, the evil one, seeing that he only proffered his request when it was too late. But how could it be too late, I asked, seeing that the master is still alive? Fifty years ago, when the master had awakened to Buddhahood in Uruvela, and was enjoying the possession of a sacred calm of spirit after his six years of fruitless ascetic practices, he sat in meditation under the Nigroda tree of the goat herds, and there Mara, the evil one, drew near to him very much disturbed on account of the danger that threatened his kingdom in the person of the Buddha. In the hope of hindering the spread of the Dharma, he said, Lord, the time has come for the Blessed One to enter into final nirvana. But the Buddha answered, Evil one, I will not enter final nirvana until I have monks, nuns and lay disciples who are accomplished, trained, skilled, learned, knowers of the Dharma correctly trained and walking in the path of the Dharma, who will pass on what they have learned from their teacher, teach it, declare it, establish it, expound it, analyze it, and make it clear. 
until they shall be able by means of the Dharma to refute false teachings that have arisen and teach the Dharma of wondrous effect. I shall only enter into final Nirvana, evil one, when the kingdom of truth stands on firm foundations. When this holy life has been successfully established and flourishes, is widespread, well known far and wide, and well proclaimed amongst humanity everywhere. But after the Master had spoken thus to Ananda, and without his comprehending the hint, he had gone away, then Mara the evil one approached the Master and said to him, Lord, the time was at last come for the Master to enter into final Nirvana. All that the Master formerly spoke of under the Negroda tree of the goat herds at Uruvela, as necessary for his entering final Nirvana, has now been fulfilled. The kingdom of truth rests on sure foundations. I trust that the Master will now enter into final Nirvana. Then the Buddha answered Mara, the evil one, thus, Fear not, evil one. The Tathagata's final passing will soon take place. Three months from now, the Tathagata will enter into final Nirvana. At these words there rolled great peals of thunder, and the earth trembled and shook violently, as you will probably have noticed. As a matter of fact, we had felt a slight earthquake in Kosambi about a month before I left the sacred grove, and this I now told her. You see, exclaimed the woman excitedly, it has been felt everywhere. The whole earth shook and the drums of the gods emitted groans as the Blessed One waved his claim to longer life. Ah, if that simple-minded Ananda had only understood the hint so plainly given to him. For when, wakened by the earthquake from his self-absorption, he came back to the Master and begged that he would consent to remain alive for the rest of the eon, the Master had, of course, already given his word to Mara and had renounced his claim to longer life. I could no longer bear to remain patiently under her hospitable roof as I realized I had to reach the Buddha before he should leave us. It had always been our one great comfort that we were able to turn to him, the inexhaustible source of truth. He alone could solve all the doubts of my troubled heart. Only he, of all the world, was able to restore to me the peace which I had once tasted. So, when ten days had passed and my strength made travelling possible to some extent, we started out. My good hostess's conscience troubled her at allowing me to go farther in my weak condition, so I comforted her with the promise that I would lay a greeting from her at the feet of the master. We now continued our journey in a northwesterly direction, in the master's footsteps, which we found the more recent, the farther we were able to advance, aided by the information gathered from place to place. In Ambagama, it was said that he had been there just eight days earlier. In the Sala Grove of Bhoganagara, we heard that he had left to go to Pava, a mere three days before we arrived there. In the heat of late morning, and very tired, we reached the latter place. The first house that attracted our attention belonged to a coppersmith, as could be seen from the great variety of metal wares ranged along the wall. But no blow of a hammer resounded from it. The occupants seemed to be having a holiday, and at the well in the courtyard, dishes and platters were being washed by the servants, as though a marriage had just taken place. Suddenly a little man in festive garb came forward and begged courteously to be allowed to fill our arms bowls. If you had come a few hours earlier, he added, then I should have had two additional welcome and honoured guests, for your master, the Buddha, with his monks, dined with me today. So the master is still here in Pava, then? Not any longer, most honoured sister, answered the coppersmith. Immediately after the meal, the Blessed One was taken with a violent illness and severe pains, which brought him near to fainting, so that we were all greatly frightened. But he rallied from the attack and started for Kusinara about an hour ago. I would have preferred to go at once, for what the smith said about this attack caused me to anticipate the worst. But it was necessary to strengthen ourselves not only with food, but by a short interval of rest as well. 
The road from Parva to Kusinara was not possible to miss. It soon led us away from the cultivated fields, through tiger grass and undergrowth, ever deeper into the jungle. We waded through a little river and refreshed ourselves somewhat by bathing. After a few minutes' pause, we started on again. Evening was approaching, however, and it was with difficulty that I managed to drag myself farther. Medini tried to persuade me to spend the night on a little bit of rising ground under a tree. There was no such great hurry. This Kusinara is, I expect, not much more than a village, and it seems to be quite buried in the jungle. How could you imagine that the master would die here? Surely he'll pass away some time hence in the Jetavana at Savati, or in either one of the great monasteries at Rajagaha. But the life of the master will certainly not go out in this wilderness. Who has ever heard of Kusinara? It may be that people will hear of Kusinara from this day forward, I said, and went on. But my strength was soon terribly exhausted, that I was forced to bring myself to climb the nearest treeless height in the hope of being able to see the neighbourhood of Kusinara from it. If we couldn't find the village, we'd be obliged to spend the night up there, where we would be less exposed to the attacks of beasts of prey and snakes, and would also be, to a certain extent, immune from such fever-producing vapours as seemed to lurk in the lower reaches of the wildwood. Arriving at the summit, we looked in vain for some sign of human dwellings. In seemingly endless succession, the slopes of the jungle rose before us, like a carpet that is gradually being drawn upward. Soon, however, tall trees emerged from the low undergrowth as the swathes of mist dissolved. The thick leafy masses of a virgin forest rose dome-like one above the other, and in a dark glade foamed an unruly brook, the same stream in whose silent flowing waters we had bathed a short time before. The whole day through the air had been sultry and the sky overcast. Here, however, we were met by a fresh breeze, and the landscape grew ever clearer as though one veil after another were being lifted before our eyes. Huge walls of rock towered skyward above the woods, and higher yet, like a roof above them, were piled green mountaintops. Forest-clad peaks they must have been, though they looked like so many mossy cushions, and ever higher until they seemed to disappear into the heavens themselves. One solitary, far-stretching cloud of soft red hue, one and one only, floated above. Even as we gazed at it, this cloud began to glow strangely. It reminded me of the past when I had seen my father take a piece of purified gold out of the furnace with pincers, and, after cooling, lay it on a background of light blue silk. For so did this luminous air picture now shine forth in sharply defined surfaces of burnished gold. In between, vaporous strips of bright green deepened and shot downward in fan-shaped patches, until, becoming gradually paler, they plunged into the colourless stratum of air beneath, as though desirous of reaching the verdure-clad mountaintops that lay below. Ever redder grew the golden surfaces, ever greener the shadows. That was no cloud. The Himalaya, whispered Medini, overawed and deeply moved as her hand tremblingly sought my arm. Yes, there it rose before us, the mountain of mountains, the place of eternal snows, the abode of the gods, the resting place of the holy ones, the Himalaya. Even in childhood this name had filled me with feelings of deep fear and reverence, with a mysterious prescience of the sublime one. How often had I heard in legends and tales the sentence, And he betook himself to the Himalaya, and lived the life of an ascetic there. Thousands upon thousands had climbed those heights, seekers after liberation, in order to reach eternal happiness amid the loneliness of the mountains, by means of profound austerities, each with their own special delusion. And now he was approaching, 
the one being among them free from all delusions, he whose footsteps we were following now. As I stood there, lost in thought, the luminous picture was suddenly extinguished, as though heaven had finally absorbed it into itself. I felt myself, however, so wonderfully animated and strengthened by the sight that I no longer thought of rest. Even if the master, I said to Medini, were to go to yonder summit in order to pass from that peak into the highest of the regions above, I would still follow and reach him. And, full of courage, I walked on. We had not, however, been half an hour on the way when suddenly the undergrowth ceased and cultivated land lay before us. It was already quite dark, and the full moon rose large and glowing above the wood, which lay opposite when at last we reached Kusinara. It was, indeed, not much more than a small village of the Mala people, with walls and houses built of wattle and daub. My first impression was that a devastating sickness must have depopulated the little township. At the doors of several houses there sat a number of old and sick people, who all looked very sad, and some of whom wailed loudly. We asked them what had happened. "'Soon, all too soon, the master dies!' they exclaimed, wringing their hands. "'This very hour the light of the world will be extinguished. "'The Malas have all gone to the Sala Grove to see and worship the Sublime One. "'For, shortly before sunset, the Venerable Ananda came into our town "'and went to the market where the Malas were having a council meeting and said, "'This very day, people of Mala, before the hour of midnight, "'the Blessed One will enter final nirvana. "'See that you do not later have to reproach yourselves, saying, "'In our town a Buddha passed away,' and we did not take advantage of the opportunity to see him in his last hours. Upon which all of the malas, husbands, wives, and children, went out to the Sala Grove. Many of the aged and weak were carried by friends and family, but there were not enough people to help us all. Therefore, we are obliged to remain behind here, and cannot pay respects to the master in his final hours. We immediately had the way from the town to the Sala Grove pointed out to us, but, finding it already filled with crowds of returning people, we preferred to hurry across the fields towards a corner of the little wood. As we reached it, we saw a monk leaning against the doorpost of a small lodging, weeping and lamenting. Deeply affected, I stopped, and at that instant he raised his face towards the sky. The light of the full moon fell upon his pain-filled lineaments, and I recognized the noble Ananda. Then I've arrived too late. Oh no, I said to myself, and felt my strength leaving me. Just then, however, I heard rustling in the bushes, and saw a tall monk step forward and lay his hand upon Ananda's shoulder. Brother Ananda, the master calls for you. So, I really was to see the Buddha in his last moments after all, and once my strength returned and rendered me capable of following. That instant Angulimala observed and recognized us. Reading his troubled glance, I said, Have no fear, brother, that we shall disturb the last moments of the Tathagata by loud weeping and female cries, we have taken no rest on the way from Vesali to here, in order that we might see the Master once again. Do not refuse us admission to him. We will be strong. Upon this he signed to us to follow them. We did not have far to go. In a little glade of the forest there were perhaps two hundred monks collected, sitting silently in semicircles. In their midst rose two sala trees, one splendid mass of white blossoms, even though it was not their season. And beneath them on a bed of golden robes spread out between the two trunks, the Tathagata rested on his right side in the lion's posture, his head supported on his right arm, and the blossoms rained softly down upon him. Behind him I saw in spirit the pinnacles of the Himalaya rise, clad in their eternal snows, illuminated by the bright moon, and yet veiled in the darkness of the night. And I seemed to catch again the dreamlike glimpse I had just enjoyed, 
and to which I owed it that I now stood here in the presence of the Blessed One. And the unearthly glow which had come to me with such a greeting across the distances flashed towards me again in the spiritual glorification from his face. Just the same as those floating cloud peaks, the Master also appeared not to belong to this earth at all. And yet he had, like them, climbed up from this same earth level to those immeasurable spiritual heights whence he was about to disappear from the sight of gods and humans. He spoke first of all to Ananda, who now stood before him. I know well, Ananda, that you were weeping in lonely grief, and that your thought was, I am not yet free from delusion, I have not yet reached the goal, and the Master is about to enter into final nirvana, he who has had such kindness for me. Put such thoughts from yourself, Ananda. Neither complain nor lament. Have I not told you already, Ananda, that all things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable, subject to separation and becoming other? How is it possible, Ananda, since whatever is born, become and compounded is subject to decay? How could it be that it should not pass away? For a long time, Ananda, you have been in the Tathagata's presence showing loving-kindness in body, speech and mind, with your whole heart, gladly, blessedly and without guile. You have done well, Ananda. Make the effort, and in a short time you will be free from desire, from selfishness and from delusion. As if to show that he was no longer allowing grief to overcome him, Ananda, commanding his voice by sheer force of will, now asked what the disciples were to do with the Master's mortal remains. Don't let that trouble you, Ananda, answered the Buddha. There are wise and faithful disciples among the warrior nobles, among the Brahmins, and among the heads of families. They will pay the last honours to the mortal remains of the Tathagata. You have more important things to do. Think of the immortal, not of the mortal. Speed forwards. Don't look back. And as he let his glance wander around the circle, and he looked at each one individually, he added, it may be, disciples, that your thought is, The world has lost its master. We no longer have a master. But you are not to think this. The Dharma and the discipline which I have taught you, that will be your master when I am gone. Therefore, cling to no external support. Hold fast to the Dharma as your island, your support. Be your own light. Be your own island. He also noticed me then. And the look the all-compassionate one rested upon me was tender and full of kindness, and I felt my pilgrimage had not been in vain. After a short time he spoke again. It might perhaps be, disciples, that in some one of you a doubt arises with regards to the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, or about the path or the practice. Ask freely, disciples. Do not afterwards feel remorse, thinking, The teacher was with us, face to face, and we did not ask him. Thus he spoke, and he gave to everyone the opportunity of speaking, but all remained silent. How, indeed, could a doubt have remained in the presence of the departing master? Lying there, with the gentle light of the full moon flowing over him, as though the devas of heaven were bestowing on him a final benediction, rained upon by the falling blossoms, as though they were the tears of Mother Earth herself bewailing the loss of her most precious child, in the midst of the range of deep feelings of his band of disciples, himself unmoved, quiet, cheerful. Who did not feel that this Holy One had forever cast off all limitations, had overcome all delusion, 
We clearly saw before us the serenity of what is called the visible nirvana in the radiant features of the departing Buddha. Ananda, stirred to the very depths of his being, raised his hands with palms together and said, How truly wonderful it is, Master, that in this assembly there is not even a single one in whom a doubt exists. And the sublime one answered him, You have spoken out of the fullness of your faith, Ananda, but I know indeed that there is not a single doubt in anyone here. Even the most backward in this assembly has entered the stream of enlightenment and will certainly reach the final goal. As he uttered this affirmation, it assuredly seemed to each one of us as though the gateway to the timeless were opening inexorably before him. Once again the lips parted that had given the world the highest, the final truth. Now, disciples, I declare to you, Vaya Dhamma Sankara Appamadena Sampadeta All created things are of the nature to pass away. Mindfully fare onwards to the goal. These were the last words of the Master.